The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. reading two passages for you today, preaching from the second one as we finish a long series in the Gospel of Luke this morning. But first I felt we should read, because I'm not preaching from the actual uh, event at the tomb of Jesus. We should always read that on Easter, I believe. And so I'm going to read Mark 16, just the first eight verses for that, and then turn to the 24th chapter of Luke. Listen first to Mark 16 beginning at verse 1, the Word of God. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying one to another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now that unresolved scene of folks trying to come to grips with something amazing is picked up in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, the last portion of this gospel, when the remaining 11 disciples were together, apparently in a house, and we read beginning at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer 
and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. This is God's own holy word, revealed for our instruction and knowledge of the truth. I declare to you this Easter morning that you are going to exist forever somewhere. I didn't say you were going to live forever somewhere because it's possible that your future existence might be something much less than what we would call life or immortality. As a matter of fact, the New Testament only applies the word immortality to those who continue into eternity with the life of Christ in them. There are people who are going to exist forever but not live forever. Now, if you're a person who sees yourself dwelling in an eternal heaven, then you ought to know that it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is the key to that hope. He is the prototype for resurrected people. If he was not raised, you won't be, and there is no eternal life. Since he was raised in a true body by the power of God, we may have an expectation about ourselves in a similar resurrected future. But it all derives from what Jesus was and what he revealed himself to be, what God revealed him to be that first Easter day, and his resurrected body, which he even inhabits today in the heaven of heavens. I'm not a tremendous fan of the Narnia stories of C.S. Lewis. I tend to like Lewis's nonfiction works better, but I have read them. And one particular segment came to mind as I was thinking about the subjects of this message today. Those of you who read the Narnia stories will recognize it. It comes from a little book called The Silver Chair. This is further on in the fictional stories. And in this particular part of the story, two children named Jill and Eustace, don't ever name your son Eustace, please, but Jill and Eustace and another non-human character whose name is Puddleglum are captured by a witch who takes them to her fortress in an underworld beneath the earth and holds them prisoner there. She sort of treats them kindly because she's more or less interested in winning their minds over to her cause. And so there's a kind of brainwashing that goes on as she tries to convince these two children and this other creature, Puddleglum, that there actually is no world above, that their remembrances of that world are false. She says things to them like this, there's no Narnia, no overworld, no sky, no sun, no Aslan. And she almost kind of hypnotizes them as she says, there never was any other world but mine. And the children find she's getting inside their brains, and and they're starting to say, well, was that world I lived in just a fantasy? Was there really such a place? Or is this the only existence? And what's interesting is just as she seems to have kind of conquered the minds of her captives, 
It's Puddleglum, the non-human creature. I think he's called a marsh wiggle, if you know what a marsh wiggle is. Got to read the books. Puddleglum speaks up and says a courageous thing. He says, look, suppose we did only dream or make up all those things like grass and trees and sun and moon and Aslan the lion. All I can say to you is that that made-up world seems a good deal more important than this black pit of a kingdom that you call yours. And if, as you say, we are just babies making up a fantasy world, then it proves that babies playing a make-believe game can have a better world that licks yours hollow. Well done, Puddle Glum. Now that seems like what in the world does that have to do with anything? Lewis was making a point. You can live in this world of ours and think this is the only world. This world of of trees and and beautiful spring days and so on seems very nice to the point that it seems like the only world that there is. And you would lose sight of the important fact that it is actually only a pale, shadowy copy of the great world to come. We succumb to what we would call naturalistic or this-worldly thinking and, and say, well, there, I'm a scientist. I can see that. I can measure that. That's real. Things I can't see aren't real. We would be like those children, almost convinced that the true and authentic world did not exist after all if we drew that conclusion. Now, it does relate to our text here. Because when we talk about the resurrection body of Jesus Christ, we're talking about someone visiting this world who really and truly and fully belongs to the true, authentic world of eternity. And Jesus in his resurrection body perfectly exemplified what it will be and what it is to live in that world. A world that we too, the Bible promises, have the opportunity to know and experience. But if we want to know something about it or glimpse it in any way, we have to glimpse that in the one and only person who exemplified that authentic world to come in the midst of this time and space world of ours. This Easter, it's not my plan to try to convince you of the truth of the resurrection. We've done that other years, and you sort of run through the arguments, you know, that one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, that here's why we believe he really rose. I'm not doing that this year. I know that he did really rise, and if you want to talk about those arguments, I'll be glad to talk about them with you. But what I'm doing today is assuming the arguments are true and are conclusive, and I'm talking about the consequences of the resurrection, particularly as we look at the resurrection body of Jesus and what it might tell us about a future for those of us who look forward to the authentic, true world that is not this one we're in right now. First of all, I want you to see this assertion made from our text. Jesus rose at Easter in a real invisible human body. He came into their midst. How he came to be there, some people say maybe he walked through the door. We're not told that. But he just suddenly appeared there and said, peace to you. It's good that he said something calm because looking at him, I think these people weren't very peaceful. They were excited. They were incredulous. 
they couldn't believe the sight of their eyes. I'm asking you if you've ever had an experience in this life when something really good, something you absolutely rejoiced in seeing happen was taking place before your eyes, but it was so surprising that it should be happening that you watched it and you were just absolutely stunned that it was taking place. I tried to think of an example, and maybe what I came up with seems trivial to some of you, but I can remember such an occasion in my own life, not too many years ago, I guess 19 years ago. It was January 3rd, I know the date, 1993. And my lifelong team, my NFL team, the intrepid Buffalo Bills, a team dedicated to mediocrity, if ever there was one, was in the NFL playoff game against another team that doesn't even exist under this name anymore, the Houston Oilers. I don't know if any of you remember this game, but if you're a Buffalo Bills fan, you will go to your grave and not forget it. Here was our team. We made it to the playoffs, all right, after having lost a lot of Super Bowls and having a lot of problems. We're in the playoffs. Well, it's the beginning of the third quarter. Guess what the score is? Houston... 35, Buffalo 3. Now, what do you do if you're a Buffalo Bills fan at that point? You turn off the TV and go shovel snow or something, right? Well, I didn't subject myself. I said, no, I have to go through the misery. This is a cross that was appointed to me. And my sons and I watched the game. If we had turned off the TV... Here's what we would have. I won't give you the the play-by-play. That's too boring. In the remaining portion of the second half, the Bills scored 38 points and won the game in the first overtime. 41 to 38. Incredible. We couldn't even believe we were alive (laughs) and that this was happening. What an amazing memory printed on, you know, our minds. And we sat there, and I can just think this must be what they were talking about here when verse 41 says, they disbelieved for joy and were marveling. That's what the resurrection was. Something so incredible, it just couldn't even be taken in. And yet there it was. It was real before them. Jesus was offering, God was offering these incredulous disciples, proofs for their eyes and their senses. Look at me, Jesus said. Take hold of me. Do you have anything to eat? You know, I often think that piece of fish is the world's most important leftover. Jesus ate that piece of insignificant piece of fish, but what did it prove? It proved he was real. Spirits don't eat fish or anything else. Jesus was submitting to the inspection of human senses to establish the reality of his visible, authentic human body. He wasn't a hallucination. He wasn't an apparition. He wasn't a ghost. He was a man alive in their midst, in the same body in which he died on the cross and yet with a great difference about it. And the difference wasn't a halo over his head. It wasn't light, you know, emanating brightly from him or something. In fact, the difference was small. When they looked at him, they weren't so incredulous just because of what he looked like, but that he was there at all. 
and that he had a continuity that they could recognize. See my hands and my feet, he said, that it is I myself. Did you ever think about why did he say, see my hands and feet? Why didn't he say, look at my face? Why didn't he say, measure me? I'm the same height as I was before. No, he said, feet, hands. What were significant about the feet and the hands of Jesus? You know what it was. The wounds of the cross. The wounds made by nails, scars on his body, barely healed at all. Now, you know, most people would want to hide their scars. They wouldn't display them. Uh, glanced just real quickly early this morning at the Parade magazine. There's a story, amazing story, about a couple in a terrible accident that were badly burned. And the woman, you can see the pictures if you look at your Sunday paper, just horribly scarred from, from being burned and the story that they've gone through. Those kind of scars aren't things people proudly display. You want to get plastic surgery and try to make them go away if you possibly can. Jesus said, look, I've got something to display to you, the emblems of my suffering. It is our belief, and Christian theology has always declared that when the body of Jesus Christ ascended to heaven where he rules today, that body bears the scars of the cross. God didn't work some plastic surgery to say, okay, the cross is over with, let's erase that. No, he wears that. And he wears it as the emblems of an accomplished work in his real and visible human body. But secondly, let's go a little deeper into this and say this. The risen body of Jesus proved something. It proved that you can have a spiritual body and not be a ghost. 1 Corinthians 15.44 makes a point relevant to this text where it says what we die in is a natural body that is raised as a spiritual body. So that causes confusion. People think, okay, I die in a a fleshly body that can bleed and gets hungry and, and so on, but I'm raised in sort of a what? What's a spiritual body is the question. Some kind of a transparent ghostly thing that floats around and goes under doors or through doors or, or what, what is a spiritual body anyway? Well, I want to point out to you that the resurrection body of Jesus, which we can understand was a spiritual body, was a body that ate fish and a body that talked and a body that, as he said, has flesh and bones. Now, this confuses us because we think spirit means non-material. Jesus' body had cheekbones and a skull and, you know, all those finger bones. I don't know how many bones are in your hand. It's a lot. I know that. You medical people know these things. You know, you have to, medical school, you have to memorize the names of, I don't know how many bones in the body, lots of them. What do all those bones do? They give shape and form to your body. If you didn't have them, you'd be puddle glum, you know, you'd be a, a bowl of jello. But your bones give you form and, and make your face recognizable and your, your whole body and your gait and your particular, sometimes people who know you well could even see the outline of you in the dark and recognize you from your form. What we're told here, I believe, is that a resurrection body is not that of an angel. Please put that one away. No human being of any age that dies ever becomes an angel. Doesn't happen. 
It's a myth. It's a fairy tale. It is not in the Bible. You become eventually a resurrected body that is like the body you have with a form that would be recognized. It's new. It's different. So how is it different? You say, it sounds like it's just me reappearing. Well, outwardly, yes, you are much the same. You will be recognized. You see, it's the inside of you that makes the resurrection body entirely new. And it's fairly simple to explain, actually. Maybe you just didn't think of it this way before. Your natural body is a body controlled by the flesh. All that the Bible calls the flesh, your desires, your lusts, your egocentric arrogance, your trying to put yourself over everything else and your interests ahead of everyone else's. You're controlled. The engine that drives you is your flesh. You see, a spiritual body may be very much like the fleshly body on the outside, but on the inside, what's in control? The Holy Spirit. Can you imagine having a life and a body that was controlled 100% by the Spirit of God? You can't because none of you has one. You know, there actually is a doctrine in Wesleyan Methodist circles at least years ago that they used to believe that the, the Christian that reached, reached real high maturity could, could achieve sinlessness in this life. That's nonsense. The Bible doesn't teach that. Perfection of control of the Holy Spirit comes after this life. Why is the resurrection body a spiritual body? It doesn't have so much to do with what it's made up of or what it looks like, but what is the engine inside it? What is driving it? What is controlling it? The Holy Spirit. It's as if you could say, here's a human being with a new engine and a new transmission. Completely different. Looks like the same car, but it runs completely differently. The Holy Spirit will control our resurrection bodies as if with a soft touch on the reins rather than jerking us from place to place or needing to be at war with our spirit. I try this illustration. It might help you, and I I tell you it's not a perfect comparison, but many of you know that in the world of computers, I'm sure most of you know, there's two kind of major domains of product. Apple makes computers, and Apple computers are operated by Apple operating system. Microsoft, people make computers that operate by Microsoft's operating system. That's the majority, I guess, by a lot. Now, just imagine, if you will, this takes a little stretching, that nobody in the world had ever had an Apple operating system, but that the Apple operating system, you who like Apple will like this illustration, the Apple operating system is the heavenly one. Okay, so you're nodding your approval, a few people. Uh, you know, you can't convert Apple people. They, they just think they're superior. <laughs> the Apple operating system is the one most people don't know, but it's perfect. It's sinless, okay? But the Microsoft system is the system of the flesh, you know, that the whole great majority has got. Now, if, I know this is silly, but if computers could be resurrected, Imagine that in the resurrection, all computers would have the Apple system because it's the sinless system. I say that's silly, but I hope it helps you understand that what is different about the world to come is the operating system, the one who controls us, 
the Holy Spirit of God is going to make us more different on the inside than we ever could be on the outside. Did you ever meet a friend, you know, you hadn't seen in, let's say, a year or two, and that person lost 30 or 40 pounds, and you met them for lunch or something or met them in business, and you said, wow, you really look different. You look great. You'd be sure to compliment them, I'm, I'm certain. And, you know, we like to think that the difference between a spiritual body and a natural body is appearance. It isn't. Jesus didn't look very different. And in his case, he wasn't even that different on the inside because he, of course, had been sinless to begin with. But we are sinful to begin with, and we will be completely changed on the inside. It's a question of are you going to be sin-controlled or God-controlled? 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty four calls this the perishable, natural, putting on the imperishable. The Holy Spirit, the immortality of God moves into us, occupies us, and will make us completely new. We're going to know each other, but as we begin to relate to one another, we're going to realize that we are different people all the way through. Well, thirdly today, then, I say this, that Jesus' resurrection body is the guarantee of every Christian's final destiny. We will have a body like his. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 is the great guarantee of that. Our citizenship is in heaven, speaking to Christians. From there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Now, this doesn't happen immediately at death. This confuses people. They say, yay, the minute I die, I'll have this, right? No, that's not actually what the Bible teaches. The minute you die, you will be with Christ if you belong to him. Absent from the body means present with the Lord. But notice it doesn't say absent from the body means present in a new body. Because what the New Testament actually teaches is that our souls are with Christ Our bodies are resurrected later. Some people can't quite get their hands around this. What does it mean to to be with God as a soul, not to have hands all of a sudden or have feet or wear shoes? Well, I can't tell you what that's like. But it does mean conscious, real, joyful, delighted communication in the presence of God And after all, our soul is the part of us that relates to God anyway. It's our mind. It's our our communication attributes. It's our personality. You know, you don't have to think you're going to be something diminished as a soul without a body. Hebrews 12.23 talks about spirits of righteous men made perfect after death. That's the way we'll be immediately so but it's not the final state. The final thing, if you know your doctrine, comes at the return of Christ. The great event that's announced in 1 Thessalonians 4 when the entire world sees. How is that possible? Once again, I can't tell you. But the Bible declares that the whole world, believer and non-believer, is going to see Christ coming at the end of time to consummate history. And the dead in Christ, those who have long been with him in their souls. Their bodies are going to rise. We who are alive are going to be given resurrection bodies. In fact, it says there's a general resurrection of all the dead. Not much emphasis is put on the resurrection of the unbeliever because he's only being raised to be judged. 
But believers are guaranteed that they are raised in these wonderful new forms that that are recognizable like Christ. We too aren't exempted from judgment, but we're going to go through judgment knowing the outcome. Did you ever go to a big airport, New York or somewhere, when international flights were coming in, you were coming on, let's say you're coming from Paris and and uh, you get off your plane and you look at a line from here to way out there that you've got to go through to get through customs. And it doesn't matter which of four lines you choose because they're all just as long. But you see something going on over here at one side. Some people are being whisked through and they, they seem to have airport personnel guiding them to this door and whoosh, they go right through. How do they do that? Well, I tell you as a Christian... That's at least a comparison to what you're going to experience in the judgment of God. A judgment whose outcome is already sure for you. And you'll be like the VIP or the royalty that comes and they escort you and say, here, you get the quick line right on through. And there's no question. You're not going to jail for drugs in your suitcase or anything of the kind. You're going right through. That's what Christians can expect because of Jesus Christ dying in our place. But we have this wonderful hope that's guaranteed by Christ himself of a body like his, uniquely mine in some way, looking like me in some way. You know, I had a curious encounter just a couple weeks ago at my own home. We had some folks from the church over, and uh, I was in another room uh, talking to some folks over here. And my wife was in the kitchen with a little knot of people, and I happened to walk in the kitchen. I can't trust this woman. I have to keep an eye on her. And I, here I find she has a five-by-seven photo of me that's on the mirror of our, her dresser, which is me when I was 19. And she was showing it to these people. I don't know how that... I never did ask her, how did that get started? Why were you doing that? Anyway, and I came in and said, what are you doing? Why are you showing them that picture? And... Uh, all I, you know, I thought, this is strange. You know, these people are saying, well, gee, Carol, I can see why you married that handsome young stud, but, but look what you've got now. And I pointed out to everybody, I said, look, I've got to tell you, that's my resurrection body that you're looking at. There. I'm hoping to get back there and regain all the territory I've lost since. We are going to be recognizable. And it's not going to be beams of light coming out of us or halos over our heads or wings on our backs. It's going to be that now we have bodies that are disease-free, sin-free, death-free. That is absolutely different than anything we've got now, even though we're the same in recognition. Well, you say, folks, you know, pastor, come on, can we be sure of this? As I close quickly with this passage, I think we can. I'm not just giving you speculations. Look at how Jesus gave us something to hold on to at the end of this. Verses 44 to 46, it says, He spent time with them after the show and tell went on, and after they handled him and said he's real. He spent time showing these disciples how the whole Old Testament pointed to his death and his resurrection and climax and consummated in that. Everything predicted that he would have to do these things. And once they were done, the scriptures would be complete. And you see, you're a person, I hope, 
as a man or woman of faith that says, yes, once in my life, I got that. The shades went up from my darkness, and I saw that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Bible. The Bible isn't just a rule book to tell me how to live a good life and make me frustrated because I always fall down trying to do it. The Bible is a book to reveal Jesus Christ as the key beyond this life to eternity. And then further, verse 47, Jesus said, having taught all that, the scriptures revealed that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So here's a simple test for you. Are you a person that says, yes, I see it. The Bible is meant to reveal Jesus Christ as the consummating center and key to all of history and eternity. And number two, I have come to him as a sinful, helpless person, and I have repented before him and said, Oh God, this Christ of yours must do for me what I cannot possibly do for myself. If you've seen that and done that, Ladies and gentlemen, no matter how confusing or frustrating your life might seem to be to you right now, I believe I can guarantee to you that you are a child of God. And this future of resurrection is going to be yours. And even though right now you might be dealing with cancer treatments or going through something discouraging, 2 Corinthians 4 is for you when it says, although our outward nature is wasting away, our inward nature is being renewed day by day and God is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I'm not asking you to be satisfied with the body you have today. If I, I know women especially. If I said, okay, who's satisfied with the body they have today? You might get one 17-year-old, I don't know, but uh, wouldn't get very many hands on that one. Who's satisfied with this body? Who wants this body forever? But who wants this body perfected and remade in the image of Jesus Christ for eternity? I hope you'd raise your hand on that one. John 6.40 says, Everyone who looks on the Son and believes on him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Since Jesus did rise from the grave, folks, there's a hell to run from and a heaven to run toward. And you run toward it by repenting in the name of Christ and embracing him as the risen Lord who is your prototype, your king, your master for all eternity. Our Father, I pray this day that we might examine our lives in light of him. We are like those children being convinced by a witch that the world we live in is all the world there is, and it's not. We rejoice in that world to come and in the provision made for us to live before you like Christ in that world. Let that truth dawn on us and awaken us and empower us to live tomorrow and every day you give us for Jesus' sake. Amen.